Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Well, hello and welcome to this month's episode of Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Thank you for spending time with us. I think you'll very much enjoy Dr. Dale's conversation this month with his special guest. He's joined by Rob Haley of Abilene. The Haley Ranch is located about 10 miles north of Abilene. I think you'll very much enjoy some of the strategies and techniques that Rob employs on his property for wildlife, for bobwhites, morning doves, and a variety of non-game species. Let's go to Dr. Dale now. Well, good day to you, Gary. It's a pleasure to be with our listeners again this week, and I want to start off with a shout out to our uh, your, mine and yours university up there in Lubbock, Texas Tech, and a shout out to my old major professor, Dr. Fred Bryant, if I have any claims to fame, the first one was the fact that I was Fred Bryant's first PhD student, and that's served me very well over the last 38 years. And uh, Fred was such a great guy, but I tell you, Fred had one misunderstanding. He only gave me one bit of counsel that I thought might have been an error during my career. And when I graduated up there, he said, I'd already taken a job as a range specialist for Oklahoma State University with extension. And Fred said, don't let extension be a dead-end career for you. And I always remembered that, but I remind Fred these days, au contraire, I could not have had a better career choice for me than outreach education, uh, extension education. And a reminder that our land-grant universities, in in my case, Texas A&M University, and then at the time, Oklahoma State, Land-grant universities have a three-way mission, and one of those missions is outreach education or extension. And so typically the way the model is supposed to work is, as an extension specialist, I'd make a trip two times a year down to College Station to get dipped into the educational waters, and then I'm supposed to come back and apply that, disseminate that knowledge to the folks out here in the hinterlands of West Texas. I say hypothetically, because in the way that it really works is that if I had to rely upon the information generated by my research colleagues down at College Station, I'd only been busy about a half a day a year throughout my career. There's just not that much new technology and wildlife management coming out of the universities or applied wildlife management anyway. And so it turns out that the, the secret to my career, in my opinion, is I've had the opportunity to visit with a lot of neat, interesting people. And when you go and visit their ranch and so forth, and you see what they're doing, and then you take what they're doing and you cut cut and paste it, copy and paste it, and be able to apply it to other people. And I'm with one of those guys today. Our guest today is Rob Haley. Rob is from Abilene and his ranch, so we're going to get more into that, but it's, it straddles the uh, Shackleford and Jones County line just north of Abilene here. So, Rob, welcome to our program today, and if you will, just start off by giving us a one or two minute elevator speech of who you are and where you're from and how do we get here today. Okay, Dale, thank you very much. First of all, thank you for letting me be here, inviting me, and I, I was born here in Abilene, and we moved away 
of course, at that age, I was pretty young. I had to follow where my dad went. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so I wound up in, we wound up in Florida, and I went to junior high, high school in Florida, University of Florida. That's a Florida Gators. Make sure there's no misunderstanding uh, down there. And I got a degree from, in physics from the University of Florida, and then I got another degree later on at University of Oklahoma City in, in finance, uh, MBA in finance. But I, was, I had a career with IBM, and then from there, uh, growing up partially in Abilene as a kid, I wanted to always come back to Abilene for the, for the ranch. Now, the ranch belonged to my grandfather, and my grandmother left it to, to four of us, and I bought a, a, a brother and a sister out, and the other sister left me her part. So as a result, uh, the ranch has, uh, I've I, I run cattle on it, and wildlife is a big part of it now. And the, the ranch itself is about 2,500 acres, which I never take for granted. I, I thank the Lord for letting me be the caretaker of it quite often, because I, I really enjoy it. But I did not want to be sitting on a porch in a rocking chair saying, I wished I would have done A, B, or C, something like that. <clears throat> Well, I had a good career with IBM, so when I uh, left IBM, I came to Abilene. And of course, our standard of living went downhill severely, and the work was put in front of me because I wanted to get the ranch operational before, before I couldn't do anything anymore. But I, I intend to live to be 100, and I intend to enjoy when I get to be 100. So I, I raised cattle, and then the, the, the idea of, of clearing all this brush off occurred to me because I was getting these magazines with showing cattle knee deep in, in belly deep in grass, right? So I, I got Alan Herman from the NRCS group to come out to say, hey, what do I do to get rid of all this, this brush and all? Uh, after he looked at it a while, there was quite a bit of it, but he said, did you ever think about wildlife? And I said, no, I really don't like to be around people that much. I like my solitude and the quietness that's out here, that's afforded me out here. So anyway, he brought another, a range specialist out, and that was, his name was Tommy Haley. And then Tommy started telling me the names of all these bushes and things and trees, et cetera, and Forbes. And he said, hey, why don't you think about wildlife? So after I got a few hunters out here, well, I said, that's what I want to do. And since that time, I've, I've devoted most everything to, to the wildlife part of it. And the, uh, that, that's a little bit of the background of the ranch part. And so I, it's, it's been fun, it's been rewarding from a standpoint of things have changed a whole lot from that, that past initial visit with, uh, with Ellen. I want to recall what I think the in the early days when you and I met, and uh, as I recall, it was probably up in Albany, Shuntford County. Uh, you mentioned Alan Herman and his colleague, uh, Rocky Vincent, a longtime mm -hmm. county agent up there. They would hold an annual wildlife meeting, mm -hmm. the Shackleford County Range and Wildlife Association, I believe. And I had the pleasure of speaking at many of those and uh, met you early on at, at one of those. And, and then a little bit, after that, I had the opportunity to come down and tour your ranch, and, and it was in the summer, as I recall, probably in July or August, fairly hot. Uh, and we're going to get into some of the specifics of what you do out there, but uh, one of the topics that day was uh, water development. And uh, as 
trained in um, most universities. I said, well, Rob, you know, those quail really don't need access to that free water. They can get the water they need from the plants and the bugs and so forth. But I'll be dadgum, ever, every uh, water that we came by that, that hot day, well, typically we flush 15 to 18 Bob Whites out of it kind of thing. So sometimes those critters just like to make me eat crow on those. But uh, we'll talk more about you, your water developments and so forth. So a degree in physics. Mm -hmm. When I think of that and I think of you, I think of Sir Isaac Newton's uh, idea that if I've seen further than others is because I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. And again, I, I've really appreciated my career and the opportunity to, to work with folks like yourself and then again be able to introduce because you've been a very gracious host over the years and we've held a number of tours and field days out there and I'll get into uh, some of those here in a minute, but um, you've never been hesitant. For somebody who professed they didn't like to be around people, you've adapted fairly well. And and you're kind of an EF Hutton when you're out in the field because when you speak, people listen kind of thing. So we'll get into some of the, the little nuggets and so forth, jewels that you've shared with us. But on that first ranch visit, I'll never forget, you took me to one of your dove fields because there was a grass out in that dove field and you'd ask me for maybe some control options on it. And when we got out there, it was uh, Colorado grass or some people call it hoorah grass. It's a panicum and it's a good seed producer. And I said, well, Rob, why do you want to control this? Because it's good for your doves and your quail. And uh, it's just like a little light. I can remember kind of coming on and, and ever since that time, from my perspective, I could see you growing and developing as, as what I call a student of quail kind of thing. So, um, again, I'm going to talk about more about your innovation and so forth in a minute. But since that time, uh, you were involved with a program we did called the Texas Quail Index, where we teach you and other volunteers how to monitor quail and quail habitat and so forth. And, again, a shout-out to Rocky Vinson for coordinating a bunch of that and for the Texas Master Naturalist here in it's a big country chapter, I think, here in Abilene because I know a number of those folks were involved in that. And, again, we, we appreciate folks like that uh, pulling their weight and those kind of things. But I guess I've known you the best over the last 10 years when you hosted our Quail Masters classes. And, again, for those of you that aren't familiar with Quail Masters, it's an adult version of the Bob White Brigade. And we take students of quail, as I call them, and we meet four times during the year, three days at a time, and we get to tour some of the neatest places in the world. We got to go up to Mr. Pickens' ranch up in the Panhandle and some of those beautiful quail ranches down in Hebronville. And at the end of the class, I'll kind of informally quiz my students. Well, of all the properties that we saw, which one did you like the best? And Rob, yours is the winner. And it's not the biggest that we see. Uh, the cash outlay is, is not the biggest, maybe the smallest of any of those ranches that we've seen. But I think it's something that most of our participants say, I can do this. And so you've inspired a lot of people uh, and, and they still talk about their trip out to Mr. Haley's place. So, um, Rob, we're right here on the uh, cusp of the 2021 quail season what's your forecast for your place well the forecast is not too good for this year but 
an interesting thing from the, I would say a four, probably three and four, something like that. But there's also a caveat with that because there's, there's a lot of cover now, a lot of cover. Uh, since I don't overgraze the place much at all, uh, I still see a lot of pears. And that also tells me that there's, there's some babies in there somewhere. There's some chicks still in the grass that haven't learned to fly. Or, but I don't think it'll be as bad as what we really think it is because of how, what was the spring like and the late winter. We had very good rains, very good rains. And you can see by the cover that's out there that's available and grasshoppers galore. You can see also that they, they didn't eat all the grasshoppers, so maybe there's not a lot of quail anyway. But the, uh, uh, anyway, I'm not that discouraged, but I don't do many quail hunts at all, just a few special people that uh, I, I will let out. If, it, 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 I just don't do quail hunts on a commercial basis like, like I used to, because uh, with the dearth of the quail, <clears throat> my bird dog guide, his, his dogs all died, and to replace those dogs, what are you talking about, 35 to $5,500 untrained. So he has just one or two for his own. So we don't do the quail hunts like we used to at all. And we're gonna get into your main source of revenue, your dove hunting here in a minute, because again, you are, uh, you are a leader in that respect. And uh, we'll talk more about that specifically in a minute. Typically, and I agree with your, uh, your idea on the quail season. I mean, uh, when I released my forecast back in uh, September, it was pretty glim, uh, pretty glum. Um, I gave probably Rolling Plains as a whole, I'd give a two to three. It just didn't look very shiny at all, but a late hatch. I've had a lot of people call me over the last six weeks and say, hey, could I up my score one or two because we've had a significant late hatch. And so uh, hopefully, I don't think it'll be a great quail year, like I said, but uh, hopefully enough to get out and get our dogs some exercise and keep us from sliding any deeper, and then hopefully we'll uh, be able to make a nice rebound next year. He told me your dad was a preacher. Mm -hmm. And I've only seen you one time, I guess over the years, uh, kind of down in the mouth. And that was when I think you'd had a wildfire out there and burned up your family house or whatever and burned up your family Bible. I, I remember you were, you were, uh, that hit you kind of thing so uh, uh again I, I know your dad would be proud of you because you're you're spreading the gospel of conservation and uh, always an opportunity always a refreshing opportunity to meet someone like you and work with them rob if we were out there if we had our quail masters class out today on the haley ranch we would uh, take a tour we'd, we'd start out from the headquarters and go up along your north fence i mean we've done it a number of times so the first stop that we would make is that uh, is that some watering facilities up there. So briefly describe what we'd be looking at up there. Certainly, and the, the water facility is one of my pride and joys because it took a lot of work. There's a pipeline that goes across the, the a corner of the ranch and the, coming from Hubbard Reservoir over near Breckenridge to Fort Phantom Lake here in Abilene. And as a result, I have four taps on that water line. Now, I've got to pay for the water, yes, but it's not nearly as much as the, the city of Abilene rates. But I have a, uh, I've always wanted something for the wildlife and the cattle so that I wouldn't have to worry about a, a, a severe drought with all, all of that dying and going away. <clears throat> so I, I designed a system whereby 
I guess, let me back up a little bit. I wanted it so the baby quail could get up, get a drink of water, and in case they fell in, they could still get out. So a, a tank with a high side on it would rule that out. I didn't want uh, the water to overflow, even though that's, there's an advantage to that because it makes a good bugging area for the bugs, for the baby quails and the, the chicks. Uh, it, when they first, first two weeks, I think is what you've told me before, that first two weeks, that's exclusively what they live off of. So the, I, I designed a system whereby about 40 feet away, I'll have the bird water, what I call a bird water, and it's about an 18 inch square, maybe two feet square. And I took a disc and welded a, a handle on the disc with the disc being upside down. And so there's just a small indentation on, the, on that slab of concrete, which is 40 inches away. But now the problem arises, and let me back up also on that. Therefore, the baby quail can walk up to that if it's at ground level. They can walk up to it and get their drink and then walk off without falling in and just, just drowning. But the question arose to me that how am I going to control the water in there since I didn't want it dripping all over the place, even though, yes, there's a benefit to it. But then, uh, so I, I had designed my, my large five by, five by five water tank, let's call it, and, and, which is about two feet deep, a uh, foot and a half maybe. And then I had some others that were 10 by 10s. So how do I get the water from, from the large tanks, which, is controlled, which will be controlled by a valve, over to the, the smaller place? Because it's too small to put a float in into it. So you know how you lie in bed sometimes at night trying to solve a problem that, that's really, really difficult. And then all of a sudden, it hit me. The aha moment arose. And of course, that's the thing to do. Put the pipe in the ground first, make that level over there on the bird water the same height as the, as the, as the big tank so that the water level will be identical. So when the water level on the bird water goes out, then it'll be replaced by the, by the, by the tank over here that is controlled by a float. And sure enough, if you put the pipe in the ground into the ground first, Yes, there are some places where I had to haul gravel in to make that bird water at the same height. But if you put the pipe into the ground first, then you can make it so it is perfectly at the same level. And did it work? Yes, it worked. But I was right, right proud of that, okay? Maybe I, got, maybe I got to use that degree physics in physics. background? Or, yeah. Some, somewhere. Absolutely. And how many of those waters do you have on the 2500? 21, and 20 21. of them have, have the bird waters to it. The reason the 21st one doesn't, because there's a fence that goes right between it, and the, I, the, I figure the bird can fly through the barbed wire fence and get over there and get their water if they need So again, some. I, I'm going to recreate those. The, the livestock watering portions of those are... 10 by 10? 10. 10 by 10 or 5 by 5. I have 15 of the 5 by 5 and 6 of the 10 by 10. Okay, and they're about 18 inches deep yeah, yes, or sir. so. Yes, sir. Uh, how much labor did you have when you put those in, Ron? Well, just myself and one other guy. And so, and I was the, I was the gopher. I did the, uh, he, I put him on the backhoe and he, he learned on the backhoe. And uh, he said he had driven one before, but I think I was just from the trailer to, to the storage <laughs> facility. All right. But hey, he, he picked up on it real quickly. So uh, I, we, I did, we did all the work together. And, and, I, and, and there was a lot of rock too. So we had, we, we had troubles, yes, but uh, some place we had to just pile uh, gravel on top, of the, on top of the pipe itself. But 
it's been very, very efficient. And I'll never forget again on that first ranch visit, and we'd stop by several of those waters, and then we come to one that you'd scribbled in side penultimate. And and I said, that must have been the next to the last one. And I think I wowed you just because here's an Oki that had penultimate in his vocabulary. But uh, yeah, you, you put in a lot of sweat equity out there. And again, that's that's one of the things that makes it attractive to, to visitors like quail masters because if they're determined, I can do this kind of thing. I, I may not be able to write the check to have it done, but here's here's a guy that's doing it himself, and uh, and I'm, I guess right now I'll go ahead and introduce this part. That day as we drove around, we came towards the south end of your property, and on a fence there, there was a bar coming out about seven feet high and then going down to the ground, kind of an L, inverted L shape, and I saw a couple of those, and I said, Rob, what's the function of those? Some kind of fence brace? And you said it wasn't for fence braces. You said, oh, every now and then, I just like to get up and do some pull-ups on that. And I thought, that's pretty impressive. And then later, I learned from, I think from Rocky Vinson, that you were a Green Beret. And uh, I, I, tell, I told you this morning, you're the only Green Beret I know. I would have never, I mean, the, the image that I have of a Green Beret doesn't meet Rob Haley. You're the most humble individual I, I know, but you, you still stayed physically fit. You told me you're how old? 82 a week from now. 80. If it's October the 14th, I'll be 82. 82, and I mm -hmm. promise you folks, if, you, if you're in my seat right now looking at Rob, you'd swear he couldn't be over 73 or 74 years old. So he's a, he's maintained his physical fitness and again, uh, uh, done a lot of work over, over the years. And uh, my congratulations to you. And again, all of our uh, congratulations to you for your service and so forth. And I know the last couple of months must have been agonizing for you with some of the political. See, we won't get into that, but uh, I, I gotta I gotta appreciate that it, it's really a bitter pill for someone like yourself to have swallowed. Real, I won't go into your military background too much, Rob, but you said you spent some time over in Germany? Yes, that's where I was stationed. I was very fortunate to go to Germany. This was in 62 to 65. So it was just before the Vietnam buildup, but uh, uh, it, it, I was very fortunate to go there. But I, I was trained, I was ready to go if, if we had to, so that, mm -hmm. that part's not a problem. Well, give but us just a little bit of Deutsch here. I, I took five hours. I don't remember much of it. But wirklich ist nicht genug. But vielleicht es wird es wird ziemlich gut. Die Wesen kommt Spanish. Meiner schmeckt sehr gut. Yeah, du kannst. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ich bin Okay. Yeah, I understand. It get mine gets fuzzy too. You said that the German term for dove was what? Uh, taub, 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 T-A-U-B, taub, taub, yeah. Well, ich liebe dich. Danke schön. Which you told the girls when you were in German yes, class, which means I love you. So uh, we'll move on back to uh, Oki and uh, the variations of English that come from that. Right, let's go back to our tour, if we were out there, Rob. And, and one of the things beyond the bird waters, we would stop in one of your dove food plots. Mm -hmm. And it'd probably be full of sunflowers and wheat. Mm -hmm. 
So we're going to go back and forth between dove and quail here for the next few minutes. But tell us about your, your recipe for your food plots for doves and quail. Well, you're right. It's for both of them, but mainly for the doves. But uh, I put food plots in that are too small for doves, but those definitely are for, totally for the quail. And <clears throat> I try to make all my food plots native uh, plants. And why is that? Because let me tell you the reason for that. I was over at one of the <coughs> Albany ranches several years ago at one of the wildlife seminars. And by the way, I went to every one I could go to. Anytime one was being held, I, I would go to it, even as far away as uh, over in the Dallas area, because there's always something you could pick up. But one of the ranchers showed where they had done an experiment and just uh, took the plow down one of a, inside of a, a, a fenced-in area that they had squared off one full section, 100, uh, 640 acres. And Steve Nelly was there. I remember his going through all the plants that were there that were good for quail, that were good for deer. It was incredible. And I said, well, I, I could not believe, because I remember asking, are you sure you, that's all you did was just plow this? Yes, that's all. Well, I got that into mind and said, let me make that so it would be native, it would be a native plant. Why native? Because it will survive. And I tried hybrids, I tried hybrid sunflowers, I tried maximilians, I tried peridovic, uh, and, and the, of course the uh, uh, black oil sunflowers. None of them ever did well when it dried up. Over here, my native plow, my native pasture, my native uh, plots, they, they, did, they did very well, usually. But that's why I, I, I got the seed. Uh, you know, I'll shout out to Turner Seed over there. Darcy's been very, was very helpful at that time. I still is, but I just uh, I don't do as much planning as, as before. But you're going to survive the hard times weather-wise with native stuff. Now, I'm not telling anybody anything they don't already know, but you can find plants that will survive our drought out, out here. And so I try to make it so that I'll have sunflowers as well as some wheat in those places. And the wheat, there, there's two things to look at. One is uh, the, the two kinds of wheat to look at. One is the bearded and the other is the beardless. And why the difference? What does it make to the wildlife? Well, you'll notice your cows and deer themselves usually will not eat your bearded wheat. The beardless wheat- they When would, it's mature, when, when it's headed yes, out. Yes, yes sir, when it, after it has headed out, exactly right. So that also says there's no need to plow it just as soon as, uh, first uh, of May comes, or, unless you want to save the nutrients in the, there's always pluses, like I always said, it just depends what your goal is. Well, if you, sometimes I'll, I'll just make a strip uh, area of bearded wheat and another area of beardless wheat. Sometimes I'll put it in the drill where there's bearded wheat on one side and beardless wheat on the other. And therefore you're gonna take care of the birds because the birds will eat the, the wheat no matter what, once it falls onto the ground or you can shred it, there's lots of ways to do that. And, and turkey like it too. Whereas the bearded, you'll see that the deer will go through, and I have pictures of it that I've used in seminars before to show how the deer will just nip off the, the seed head with, the, with those nice conglomeration of seeds at the very tip of a, of, of a stem. And so does it work? Yes sir, it works. So let, let me just recap Please. The beardless wheat, for your deer primarily. Yes, mm -hmm. uh, the bearded wheat, the old traditional hard red winter wheat, mm -hmm. 
more for the birds. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you can shred it if you want to, but usually the wildlife will take care of it. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll fall down onto the ground, then you plow it in time for, for the next next uh, sowing season. And then that wheat just left standing, and the sunflowers are gonna grow up in some of that, so you... Well, usually, usually I'll put the sunflowers by themselves, uh, like around the edge of it, or on one, or, or in a big sunflower field, I'll put the the, the uh, wheat field on the on one end of it, or one, it, let's just say it, one end of it, so that they, uh, the deer will be concentrated there. And uh, so it, it has worked out very well, very and, well. And what there. time of the year do you disc or plow to generate your sunflowers? Yes, I, I will do that in the uh, January time frame. usually is the best. If you wait too late, then you're gonna, uh, you're gonna plow up a lot of little, the, 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 the seedlings, okay, before they get, get where they're productive. But the, uh, uh, and then disking them even, even in December is not a problem, but you've got to be careful there. Tansy mustard really takes over if, you, if you're not too careful. And I don't know about the seeds of a tansy mustard. Uh, I know I've asked you about them before. You didn't have an exact answer, which is fine. Uh, but it may be because we don't shoot quail at that time of the year. To see if they're if they're in the uh, in the in the uh, gullet the, the uh, crawl. Then. I'm not aware of any wildlife values uh, of, of the tansy mustards and, and those exotic yeah, mustards, yeah. but uh, reminded uh, you know faith is as big as a mustard seed <laughs> get you through kind <laughs> yeah, of thing. So, so uh, yeah, uh, let's move on down the tour. We would stop at an area there where you have. Uh, you've implemented what you call zigzags. Yes, sir. Now, some of the people from the 60s are thinking zigzags, bull Durham, or something else you put in that paper, but we're talking about something on the ground, mm -hmm. so describe what a zigzag is. Well, going back to that demonstration at that large ranch uh, where they just did the disking, well, I, I, got, a uh, I got a bulldozer, and on my four-wheeler, I went through my rangeland and this is where the mesquites are, and having the dozer just make a path wide enough so I could get a disc in there. And I, my guess is there's probably at one time 30 miles of zigzags. In other words, let me, the reason I led the, the dozer guy through there, there's a lot of things that, uh, a lot of plants I did not want disturbed. Uh, Lote bush as an example, mesquite, I really didn't care. There's enough to take place of that. A, a good, uh, uh, Hackberry, you don't want to take that out either. Just as an example, I left one little place that is no bigger than a 10-foot square, and that's after measuring, roughly, and there are nine or 10 plants in there that the wildlife can utilize, and that's just a small area. Dale, you've taught me an awful lot, there's no doubt, but one thing you said, know your plants. You've always stressed that every, every session that, that you've been in, which is very good. I remember going down the side of the road at times, spraying the buffalo burr to get this blasted, sticky fly, uh, plant out of my place. And I cultivate that stuff now. And the same way with the croton. I, I, my, so my zigzag, let me go back to the zigzag. So that, and it zigzags all over the place. That's how it got, it got its name. And sure enough, in the, uh, if we have good, good rains, some of that play, some of them are just looks like a carpet of croton sometimes at times. You've got to have the, the weather on your side, there, there's no doubt. But is it effective? Yes. I remember being with a quail hunter one time and where, where we were 
I, I was just along on the ride, and he said, we haven't seen any quail for, uh, say, eight or 10 or 15 minutes. It's, it's a long time. And he said, we haven't seen any quail because there's nothing for them to eat. Well, we came up on an, a little area where the zigzag was full of crow, two coveys in there, two good cubs. I mean, the, the 12, 14, 15 coveys, uh, birds per covey. But that shows, yes, it was, it was working, yes, sir. Working very nice. You remember part A of my maxim about know your plants. Part B is and know how to manipulate. Them. Yes, sir. So yes, again, sir. you've used yeah. the you've I used the plow you. very well. Yeah. Uh, let's talk. Do you use? Uh, I mean, Leopold said that the, the axe, plow, cow, and fire. So you've talked about brush control yes, a bit, yeah. and you talk about the plow. What about uh, the fire? Do you, do yeah. you use burning at all? Yeah, I, I do. I haven't recently because of. If every time we're ready to burn, usually there's a fire ban on because of the, the, the dry weather we've had. I've done quite a few burns out there, yes, sir. And you it, told me about on your north fence, uh, you've you've increased the width of your fire guards, but you've gotten double duty at it. Yes, sir. So what, tell me about that. Actually, actually, the north and the and the east side of the fence. Your downwind side. Yes, sir. Yeah. Exactly right. Well, I, that's about a for a 17 foot plow. It's uh, about eight eight plow widths. I'll go back and forth four times, so that'd be eight times. So it's, it's roughly a little over 50 feet wide. And that, that just extends the food plots. Now, now here you have a food plot that's two miles long and, and what, 80 feet wide or so. But does it work? Yes, sir, it works well. The negative there, yes, there's a lot of Johnson grass coming in, but Johnson grass does have a seed I don't know if I can really say I like Johnson grass now, but I will live with it. And do, do you have any good ideas for Johnson grass? Well, to, to I, I don't get mad at Johnson grass because I, the reason I'm for it, I'm in dry country, you know. Yeah. But I tell people, have you ever seen a year so dry that Johnson grass failed to make seed? I have not. Mm -hmm. So that alone mm -hmm. makes me tolerant. I yes. guess more tolerant. Mm -hmm. And I was, mm -hmm. I know any cotton farmer just can't swallow that. But uh, Sometimes we gotta appreciate our uh, weeds as, uh, what did Emerson say? What is a weed but a plant whose virtues have yet to be discovered? Right. And mm -hmm. so sometimes we gotta look at it through different eyes. Uh, moving on a little bit, Rob, and, and again, you've, you've made a pretty good living out of uh, your doves out there. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your dove management. And uh, let me start off by saying, uh, who's your clientele? Are we talking about folks from Abilene here, or where do you get? If you don't mind sharing any trade secrets, I do not mind sharing that at all. I do not advertise locally, and the problem with that is that's when you start getting your poachers. Okay, so I have I have friends that don't even know what I do, so I, I don't I don't have to I don't drink coffee, so I'm not at a coffee break very often. But the uh, I had a friend from church that uh, over in Dallas and. He was visiting his son and the son said, uh, there was an article in the Dallas paper that Ray Sasser had written. Ray has been out several times and he's deceased now, but I really have missed him. He became a good friend. But uh, he said, would you know this guy? I says, I don't think so. But this, this guy was a dentist that has nothing to do with the story, but he could, which says he could read. So he looked at the paper and said, well, I know this guy, we go to church together. But he had no idea what I did because I don't really care to publicize here. Most of them come from the Metroplex. And uh, uh, I would say 95% are repeat customers. They, they come, they, they like, and they, 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 want to come to, they want to come back. To me, that's what a successful hunt is, when the customer wants to come back. And 
even though we've, the last two years, the amount of, the, the number of doves have, has been lacking, there's no doubt. But, uh, but anyway, I'll have the same large groups and the same groups of small, uh, small groups of individuals that, that, that will come. And so you get to know them, they know you, and they follow the rules. Uh, in fact, one of the rules is no electronic devices in the field. Hey, we have rattlesnakes. I want to be able to hear a rattlesnake instead of the, looking at a phone. One of my guides said, my, or I, the, the one guide said that, hey, here's a guy that said he didn't see any birds. And he said, every time I went by, he was looking at his phone. So I've just asked people, hey, please use it only in case of an emergency. We don't need to pick you up with a snake bite because you didn't hear the snake rattling right. warning you in, in favor, in, in front of it. I affectionately refer to Rob these days as Der Dovemeister, and again, at the time, I didn't know you'd spent time in Germany, but you are one of the, I'm going to say top two or three folks I know in the state of Texas that's, uh, that's working the dove situation and, and from the ground, literally, the habitat up, up through the harvest management and so forth, and kudos to you from that standpoint. Um, you mentioned a while ago that some of your food plots are too small for doves. Elaborate on that. Yes, sir. Let's take, take as an example a, a three-acre plot. That's really too small for dove. If you shoot the doves, they're going to fly off. They're going to go to another area and they'll not come back. But if you have a 130-acre field, when they fly off, they'll fly to the other side of the field or somewhere else in that same field, more than likely. So, therefore, the, the smaller plots, uh, and I couldn't put a, a figure on it exactly what it would be where, where that threshold is, where it's too small. But if you have the big fields available, that's where we put the hunters because they, they, they are available. And the, uh, I will, of course, I will shred into those fields, uh, across them, across, and then uh, do things that will try to attract the doves into the center of it so that they can keep them moving back and forth. And the, uh, so I would put it in the three to four acres, you're not gonna, it's not conducive to putting not even one person there, because uh, you, you'll do your shooting and then it's over with. Where now a tank, a stock tank is a different situation because that's, that's usually that's the only water in the area. And then they will, they, they will come back to that water and, it, 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 it'll, okay. But they, it, they'll come back to that water and it won't be a problem because that's the only water that there is. So let's say that we had a 80 acre field. Mm -hmm. How many hunters would you have located and at what distance sure. from a safety standpoint? We'll, we'll try distance? to get them about 50 feet, uh, 50, 50 feet or 50 yards, 50 yards apart. And of course, a lot of times people want to hunt together and you just got to tell them, hey, it, you, you're going to do better if you separate. But uh, it, that, that's up to those individuals. We will place them where they, where they are safe Hopefully they are safe and just, I'd go over, say, I do a safety talk at the beginning of each uh, hunt. And as a result, they, uh, they understand, they might not follow it, but they understand what to be safe on and what not to be safe with, uh, uh, what, what doesn't really matter, which I don't think there's anything that doesn't matter. But, uh, but anyway, that, that's how we try to keep them safe and make sure when you go out to pick up a bird, the person on your left and the person on your right knows you're going out there to pick up a bird. Okay, make sure they know that. Mm -hmm. So that, there, there's a lot of things to keep well, it. One of the things, Rob, that you've taught me over the years, and I remember seeing it that first trip, again, these are, let's again say, 
80 acre field surrounded by mesquites brush and every so often every 100 yards or so there'd be a big mesquite but it'd be dead and uh, to tell us again what the form and function of that was well to me maybe a good mesquite is a dead mesquite because i've got so many of them but if you spray those periodically and bear them make them bare so that there's no leaves on there. It might not happen that year, but the next year they will be there. That's where your doves are gonna go and light and stage until they wanna go into the field. They, they love a, a, now this is just by observation. I, there's no, I don't think there's any scientific proof back, back of this, but it might be. But the doves, they don't have to fight the, the, uh, the leaves and the branches all of, and all of that when they start to light. So they, they can light on a dead tree very easily or look at them on a wire. I even, one of my dove fields, I call it the dove wire field, I, I strung a phony electric, it's not electric line, but it, it is, it's uh, probably 100 yards long for the doves, just strictly for the doves. On one end of that field, there's a large electric line uh, or uh, multiple lines uh, going around, along the end of it. The doves don't go there. They go to the one that, that I built, which it might be because of the electricity in there that's making some magnetic difference to them. I do not know. But does it work? Yes, it works really well. So the, the tree is acting as the same function as a wire on the, along the edge of the field. And uh, in fact, Ray Sasser took a picture of one of the trees just loaded with doves. Mm -hmm. I mean, just uh, uh, because he put it in a paper some, somewhere I read one time. But well, again, I, I, I compliment you on a lot of respects, your hard work, uh, your service to our country, and your innovation. Because like I said, it's uh, every time that I've gone out there, I've picked up something new, and, and that's what I consider to be one of the greatest aspects of my job, is to be a Johnny Appleseed. I go to Rob Haley's ranch, and I see him, and you can't believe how many people that I meet that they'll take me out and I'll say, well, now this is a zigzag. I said, where'd you get that idea? Well, Mr. Haley down there in Abilene kind of thing. Uh, now, I'm gonna bring up a couple of things here towards the end of our talk. One is, and if you've ever been out from Abilene East in the summertime unprepared, you've gotten chiggers. So talk, talk to me about your, uh, your chigger prevention technique. Well, it's very simple. I was listening to a radio program one time and the driving along and the, the host was a veterinarian. And he said, if you give your dog a Brewer's East tablet every day, he won't have fleas and ticks. And I said, hmm, that sounds, sounds pretty good. And I got to think, I use a thing called Brewer's Yeast. I make a morning drink, it's a protein drink. I make it for my breakfast every morning. And I put Brewer's Yeast in there. And I said, that is the reason I'm sure why I do not have uh, chiggers when we walked through a patch of Johnson grass and the people that walked through there the next day they were covered with them and so uh, I put that I used to put that drink into my that that uh, element the uh, brewer's yeast into my drink every every day well then I read an article a, a couple of years ago about ticks the, the diseases that they carry and there's a couple of news disease new diseases here in the states that they've de determined that, that came from the tick and that they have no cure for it. it it's, that, it's that bad, that's serious. It doesn't affect very many people, but there's several cases on, on record. 
And so I started doubling the amount of uh, brewer's yeast I put into my drink. And then uh, a, a couple of months later, I developed a severe pain in my right big toe. I went to the doctor and he said, actually it was a she, said that, uh, I think you've got gout. So what causes gout? She said, anything that has a lot of purines. I read later that Brewer's yeast, after visiting with her, she gave me something for it that worked. But the pain is severe. If you've ever had gout, you don't want to fool with it. So I read that Brewer's yeast is one of the highest foods with purines in it. So I had to cut that out. I'd have to put up with the chiggers now. But, uh, but anyway, uh, it's, uh, there's always pluses and minuses no matter what we do. If, if we just have a happy medium going down the middle of the path instead of on each side where the rattlesnakes are, we might stay out of trouble. As my preacher Paul over San Angelo often says, you're free to choose your actions, but you're not free to choose consequences. <laughs> and sometimes we just don't know what those consequences are until we've learned from experience. Last thing, Rob, that I remember seeing out there, I, don't, I don't, don't know if we're still out there or not, but it impressed me at the time, was some of your deer blinds. And they were made out of, and this kind of hurts me as an Okie, but there's, a, there's an old cattle feeder named uh, Oklahoma Pride Feeders. You may have seen them somewhere. Tell us about your rationale there. Well, when, starting first, when first starting out, there was not a lot of money with which to work, okay? So I had some calf feeders they called them, and they, they were just big bulk feeders with a roof on them and a flat top, a flat top on the top of them. And I got to think, well, maybe I could use those in my deer blinds. So I welded some stuff, some handrails on it, and put some steps to climb up it so that uh, they could get in there, and then put uh, some curtains around it at the top, the camouflage type things. And that was, those were my deer blinds for several years. And uh, they're still there, but they're not utilized very much. Uh, but, but anyway, that was just something that was available, and the cost was very good, because I already had them paid for a long time ago. Of course, they were rusted out at the bottom, and, and no, no good except for that. And my guys wanted to put deer feed in there, and then shoot them when they <laughs> came up that close, but I, I nixed that. So, but, but anyway, yes sir, that was something that, uh, that was there and available, and it worked fine. It did for the purpose. For good well, we've covered a lot of ground here today, Rob. Is there anything that, that we failed to mention that you'd like to alert our listeners to? Well, uh, another thing that just came to mind is that, that uh, plowing, that strip plowing, doing it by the side of the road. A lot of times you'll have it cleared anyway by the side of the road, and that's another good place to do the, the strip plowing. You don't have to plow very deep, just uh, an inch or two. To disturb, you're disturbing the soil. The soil disturbance is what I guess the nomenclature that it goes under, right? That, uh, but it, uh, th that would be the only thing. And and I would say, pay attention when Dale Rollins speaks, okay? Because <laughs> hey, lowering your plants. If you don't know your plants, you're going to be killing the ones that are that are beneficial. I've been there. I've done that. But uh, know your plants and how to how to utilize them. And and the croton, as an example, those seeds can stay there for years. You do not know. And if you don't believe so, just this past year, because of the rains we had in the spring, early spring, there were sunflowers where mesquites were growing on the rangeland, thick, very thick. 
So how long had they been there before the sun, before the mesquite got there? I, I've heard Ricky Lennox talk about sunflower seeds being able to lie dormant in the soil for I think 80 years, uh, I, kind I, of thing, I, and then just the right conditions. I, I, you know, I believe here you get sunflowers. Kind and, of and Ricky Lennox is another who is he and Steve Nelly both just uh, really good help. Really We're good going help. back it's again resources. to your physics background, Sir Isaac Newton, uh, standing on the shoulders of giants. Yes. And when you talk about Ricky Lennox, I did a podcast yeah, with Ricky yes, not yeah. long ago and made that reference to that. But yeah, find find your local source of plant expertise and spend a day in the field with them, and then uh, become a student of the plants, kind of thing. And you'll be you'll be a better wildlife manager if you can if you can talk the plant lingo. It's going to make you a better wildlife manager. Again, Rob, uh, thank you for your service and thank you for all the assistance that you've been to students of quail over the years. Rob Haley, often imitated, never duplicated. Gary, with that, we're going to send it back to you in the studio and look forward to visiting with you next month. Thank you so much, Dr. Dale, and thank you, Rob Haley, for your tremendous wildlife and conservation efforts on the Haley Ranch near Abilene. The Dr. Dale on Quail podcast is now in its third year. To access previous programs of the Dr. Dale on Quail podcast, go to the website of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation at quailresearch.org. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Thank you for joining us. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.